Well, good morning. Love it. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus 37. My name is Matthew Boffey, and I lead the worship ministry here at Christ Church, and I'm excited to be opening God's Word with you this morning. Again, we're in Exodus 37, and as with the last few weeks, our, our text is a bit long, so I'm going to pause between each section, just briefly summarize what it is that we read so that we can keep track of ourselves amidst all the cubits and acacia wood references. Uh, for context, we've been, in the last few weeks, we've been reading about the construction of the tabernacle, and, and now this week we're going to read about some of the furnishings inside the tabernacle, starting with the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the most holy place, that inner, inner curtain. So hear the word of the Lord, starting at ver- uh, chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel made the Ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. So what we've just uh, read is basically a big chest. Think of it like a four-by-two chest, and it's made of, of common wood, acacia wood, which for them was nearly as common as like pine is to us out here. So that's what it's made of, but it's entirely covered with gold, so you wouldn't actually see any of the wood. And then on top of that chest is uh, what is called the mercy seat, or the seat of atonement, and it's basically a lid on the chest, and then on the two ends of that lid are from the same, made all of from one piece, is two winged creatures, cherubim or like angels sort of, winged creatures, and their, and their wings are, are covering the mercy seat as, as if to guard it. So that's what you're seeing, and again, this is in the Holy of Holies. Now we're going to move into the, the, the next room out, uh, which is called the, the outer, uh, or the, there's, there's the inner room, and then there's just the, the holy place is what it's called, and we're going to read about the holy items there. Uh, excuse me. Verse 10. He, Bezalel, also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold, and he made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and made molding of gold around the rim. And he cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners as its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings, as holders for the poles to carry the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table, and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and its dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. So what's just been described for us is a table with a table setting. So it's it's sort of a small table. It's about three feet by one and a half feet, and then just two feet off the ground. So it's low to the ground, and... Like the other, like the ark, it's made of wood, but it's covered in gold. And also like the ark, it has 
poles, it has rings with poles through them to carry it because everything in this tent is portable, to able to be picked up and moved to the next camp. So that is what we're reading there. And then again, on top of it are items for a meal, bowls, plates, etc. Starting at verse 17, the lampstand. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of, of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of gold. And he made it seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it all and its, and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. So what this is, is, is a menorah, which is the Hebrew word that's translated here as lampstand. Uh, this is a pretty big menorah. Think of it more like a, a floor lamp. And so it rests on the floor, and its center, its center shaft is, is like the trunk of an olive tree. And then its branches going out look more like the branches you'd see on an almond tree. And these were very common trees in uh, the Mediterranean. And so uh, that's what that is. It's a, it's a big lampstand. Okay, verse 25. We're getting close. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. The length was a cubit, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it. And he made two rings of gold on it under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. So what that is, this is a small altar. It's about three feet off the ground, and it's 18 inches by 18 inches. So picture like a really small table. And it's made of wood and covered in gold like everything else, and it has poles like everything else. So if you look at all the items together, everything is pure gold, or arrayed in pure gold and is ready to be moved at a moment's notice. And then uh, finally, verse 29 he made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, there are many glories hidden in these details. Please help us to see them so that we can more truly appreciate how deeply uh, you care to dwell with us. By your son's name I pray, amen. Well, as I got into this text and you know, began realizing, okay, this is, this is describing the furniture in the inner room, in the outer room, I found myself thinking about what makes a given room important. So I turned to Google, as one would, and, and Googled, what is the most important room in the world? And of course, there's no definite answer to that. Some people maybe would say the Oval Office. Others, a, a one that came up a, a good amount was the UN Security Council Chamber, where world leaders, world leaders will meet to uh, make important decisions. But there's a room that's also been described as the most important room in the world, and it's buried deep in a mountain between Norway 
and the North Pole on this remote island, kind of like Star Wars-y, where like Luke Skywalker goes for his, I don't know, exile. And it's called Svalbard Global Seed Vault. And it contains over 500,000 samples of plant seeds. So it's basically a security supply in case there's ever sort of a massive environmental event in which like our crops are endangered. These seeds could you know, become food for the world. And so it's been called the most important room in the world because of uh, the purpose it could serve. Rooms are important because of what happens in them, and uh, yeah, because of what's inside and what happens there. You might think of rooms in your own life that are important to you. I'm sure all of us have that room that comes to mind. Maybe it's a kitchen table where you enjoy quality time with your family and you're watching your kids grow day in and day out, and that is like the most important room in your world. Maybe it's a a greenhouse in, in your backyard and you have a little garden and it's your sanctuary where you go. Or maybe it's your art studio where you uh, explore your craft with great joy. Maybe it's your, your office at work and you are doing work that you really care about. Maybe it's a room where hard things are happening, like a counseling office where you are working on, on deep things about your own life and in your own heart or where you're working with a counselor and your spouse to try and resolve conflict. The rooms in which we live our lives hold great meaning because of what happens in them. This text that we just read describes the furniture of what was at the time the most important room in the world. And it's the most important room in the world because it is the room where God dwelled, where the worship of God happened. On the surface, to us, it looks just kind of like a building report. Like, okay, he, he built it just like it was described chapters earlier. But actually what it does is show how God provided a way for our single greatest need, and that is for us to dwell with him and for him to dwell with us. This text is actually, in in a way, at the center of our lives. This room was at the center of the Israelite camp. It was the center of their lives. And the the truth that we see here and the truth that these objects foreshadow, they are to stand at the center of our lives and in that way give ultimate meaning to everything we do in every room where we do them. Specifically, this text shows us um, five steps that God takes to dwell with us. Five steps that God takes to dwell with us. First, God reveals himself. God reveals himself. Second, God provides atonement or mercy. Third, God invites us to his table. Fourth, God shines in our darkness and then lastly, God makes us holy for service. So again, five steps that God takes to dwell with us. God reveals himself. God provides atonement. God invites us to his table. God shines in our darkness. And God makes us holy for service. So let's start with the first one, God reveals himself. So we're stepping into the Holy of Holies and we're examining the, the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to spend most of our time on this one, because this is the most important object, and it's the weight of the text. Uh, and I want to draw two specific details about the, the tent. Um, one, which responds to the first point, how God reveals himself, and uh, the second one to the second point about atonement. Uh, and these are details about the ark. The first has to do with the, that inside the ark were placed the the Ten Commandments. We don't read that in this passage, but we know from a previous one that the ark was built to contain the the two tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. 
And these are the tablets that Moses received from God when God met Moses on Mount Sinai to um, initiate a covenant with, with the Israelites. And it's bound up in God revealing himself. So before God gave the, the law, this is what he said. He said of himself, The Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So this is God declaring who he is and who he is to the people. And then following that, he gives Moses the laws. And and altogether, these things basically represent the terms of the covenant that God is forming with Israel. God is, in a sense, saying, this is who I am as God. This is who you are to be as my people. So the fact that these tablets dwell in the ark, this is where we're getting the idea that, that God is revealing himself to us. This is the first step that he takes to dwell with us, that he reveals himself. And it, he reveals himself as something that, that Moses and the people of Israel could see and touch and comprehend, these stone tablets with, with actual human words on them. But in the scriptures, God's, God himself is so bound up with his self-revelation, self-revelation, that is, with showing us who he is, that in a sense, God himself is dwelling in the ark. That's sort of what the, the Ten Commandments sitting in the ark is, is representing. And in a few chapters, we're going to see God's glory indwelling the ark of the covenant in the tabernacle. So, this ark contains the revelation of God, and that's the first step that God takes to dwell with Israel in the same way with us, that he reveals himself. Well, this leads naturally and necessarily to the next step, which is that God provides atonement. The tablets that are in that Ark of the Covenant contain words that no one in the history of the world has ever lived up to, except for Jesus Christ. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We have all, in one way or another, broken all ten of the Ten Commandments. Which is why, and this is probably my favorite detail about the whole text, the lid of that ark is a mercy seat, is a seat of atonement. Now, atonement is a word that means payment for sin. So this mercy seat is a place of forgiveness. By resting the seat of atonement above the tablets, God is basically at once providing the terms of the covenant and the answer to what happens when we break that covenant. And we will. In this way, the seat of atonement is basically the opposite of a prenuptial agreement. A prenuptial agreement is two people who are about to enter a covenant together, and they basically provide terms for when they separate. You know, you take yours, I'll take mine, we go our separate ways, and, you know, no harm, no foul. When God makes a covenant with us, he says, here I am, this is my promise to you. And when you break your promise to me, this is what I will give to you. I will give to you mercy. I will provide atonement for you. It's powerful, incredible. And this mercy and the fact that it's baked in to the covenant is underscored by the fact that the tablets inside of this ark are a second printing. These were not the first set of tablets that the Israelites got. The first one they got 
Moses broke them on a mountain. You may remember from a few chapters ago that God had given Moses the Ten Commandments, and Moses is coming down the mountain with them. He's ready to deliver to God's people the terms of this gracious covenant. And from a distance, he hears them singing and shouting, and he sees that they are worshiping an idol, a calf. They've broken the covenant before they've even heard the terms of it. And Moses, in his anger, throws the tablets on the ground, and they break symbolizing Israel has broken their covenant with the Lord. So Moses goes back up to the mountain, and God gives them a second chance and renews the covenant. So under the seat of mercy are these second tablets, a testament not only to God's character, but also to our weakness to do what God commands. Some of us are on our hundredth tablet, or our thousand tablet. We just are breaking and breaking and breaking over and over and over. And maybe you are feeling a great burden of guilt or even fear that you are not even in the covenant because you're sinning. And wouldn't I not sin if I was in this covenant? I want to say to you, in Christ, mercy is baked into the covenant. It has always been baked into the covenant to the way that God relates with his people. Your disobedience is not a surprise to God. The ark in which he dwelled, the lid of it is a seat of mercy. It says so much about who God is. The ark of the covenant is not only a declaration of God's holiness and majesty guarded by these angels, it is also a declaration of his mercy. It is a place where the two meet. And the only way, that is the only way that it can be a place where we meet God. Without mercy, there is no hope for us to be with God. Before we move on to the next set of ways God's provided for us to dwell with him, I want to pause and relate uh, mercy to our life together and to some of your important relationships. You know, most obvious one would be a a marriage, because that is itself a covenant, but even between one another as God's people, we are in a sense in a covenant together, and in all of us, put a strain on our covenants or break our covenants. And I want to speak to what this ark, this two-by-four box in the desert has for us in that way. And it's that we should be people of mercy. We should be mercy people. In Israel, in the center of their life is this declaration of mercy, and it should be the same for us. If you find yourself in the position of having broken a covenant, or sinned against somebody, and you are playing down your sin as if you do not need mercy, this ark and the fact that if someone were to just reach out their hand and touch it, they would die on the spot, that should put an end to your underestimation of your sin. Your sin is not a light matter. It's not something to be glossed over. It's not something to use you know, shifty words to describe so that it's not actually sin. It's sin. Your life is full of broken tablets, as is mine, and we need mercy. Perhaps you find yourself in the other position, being wronged against, and you are being asked for mercy. You are withholding it as punishment or as some way to soothe your pain. Your life is full of broken tablets too. This seat of mercy is for you. 
how could you withhold mercy from another person? And I don't mean to, to belittle that the things that are done against us can be severe and that marriages and relationships can be deeply fractured and that the road of reconciliation is long and hard. But I would call you, by the authority of this text, to take that first step of extending mercy or going and seeking mercy, if that's what you need. So the first two ways that God has provided a way for us to dwell with him is that he provides atonement, or is that he reveals himself and that he provides atonement. We're moving on now to the third one, and that is that he invites us to his table. He invites us to his table. We see that in verse 10 where it begins to describe the table of presence. And on this table sits a loaf of bread and dishes and utensils for a meal. A symbol that Israel is invited to God's table. I mean, think about if when, you ho- when you host a get-together at your house and you've got your table all set, what's it set for? For people to come in and sit there and to have fellowship with you. That is what God is, is saying by this, by this furniture in his tent. This is for you, Israel, to come and be with me. I am your sustenance. I am your life. And we are in fellowship together. The Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this table shows us that God dwells with us by inviting us to his table, sustaining us with his very self. And it's all the more incredible when you think that in just the, the, the next room over, that back room, is that Ark of the Covenant where God cannot be approached but by one person once a year. And then here at this table, through the priests, he is inviting all people to have fellowship with him. Do you see that the yearning, jealous heart of God for his people? He desires fellowship with us. He doesn't begrudgingly invite Bezalel or ask Bezalel to make a table. He commands it because he wants to dwell with us. Maybe you're worried that God wants absolutely nothing to do with you. That because of your sin, you're just a worm to him or a nuisance to him. He's had it with you. That he merely tolerates you. Yes, sin is severe, but God has mercy for it. And, and here we see that God wants fellowship with you. He is inviting you to his table. Well, just as every house needs a table, every house needs a light, something to illuminate the room. And that's where we come to our, our fourth provision from the Lord, that he shines in our, dark, in our darkness. And that's what the golden lampstand is doing. For one, it's fulfilling a very specific purpose. You know, the priests are performing their duties, and even at night, and they need to be able to see. So the, the lamp is literally giving light to them to, to do what they need to do. But also, it is rich in imagery. You know, it's shaped like a tree, and so it harkens back to the, the tree of life and the presence of God and into all things being right and ordered. It's, it's a lamp, so it gives light, which in Scripture, God is constantly described as, as light. You know, he dwells in indescribable light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then its seven lamps represent that God is not just the light of Israel, but the light of the whole world. And so if you think back to Nate's sermon last week and the idea of the tabernacle as a cosmos, this is fitting right into this. This is proclaiming God is the light of the world. He is illumination. Again, this speaks to our greatest needs. How many of us, if we could snap our fingers and have the darkness just go away, would have it? We need light. We're so overwhelmed by darkness in our world, in our communities, in our own lives and hearts. God gives light. God is light. 
God is hope in our darkness. So that's being proclaimed in the tabernacle. Well, as I said, the lamp is giving light to the priests so that they can fulfill their their various duties, which brings us to our last point, which is that God makes us holy for service. God makes us holy for service. And we get this from the altar of incense and the anointing oil. Both of these were used by priests in the offering of sacrifices. The the incense was to offer uh, pleasing aromas to God. And then the oil was used to, to consecrate, which means make holy or dedicate these objects to God, um, to make them holy for service. And this is because everything involved in the worship of God must be holy. It must be holy. Well, there's a dilemma there for us. We are made to worship God, but because of our sin, we are deeply unholy. We cannot fulfill our most basic need and duty as human beings to worship God. Excuse me. Well, just as God made provision for, for the objects with the anointing oil that they'd be made holy, he makes provision for us with the blood of Christ who cleanses us, cleanses us of our sin. And he even makes Christ a pleasing aroma on our behalf. Second Corinthians says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. And we turn now to see how Christ fulfills everything that we've just looked at. Christ is not only our pleasing aroma uh, to God. He is not only our, our blood that makes us holy, or the blood that makes us holy. He's also the light of the world. He is called a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for, your glory, for glory to, to Israel. Jesus is our bread of, from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And when you think about Jesus' ministry, on earth, in the gospel, so much of his ministry is happening around a table. Jesus is the living embodiment of God's welcome and God's fellowship and God's sustenance. Jesus is our atonement, where the high priest had to come into this most holy place every year to make atonement. Jesus made atonement once and for all by his own blood, powerful enough to, send, to cleanse sin for all time for those who believe. Jesus is the revelation of God. Scripture says that Jesus was the Word made flesh. And Jesus says of himself, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the exact nature of God, the living, breathing representation of God on earth. In fact, Jesus is our true tabernacle. Scriptures call him Emmanuel, which translates God with us. He came and lived among us as this portable, tangible, true and heavenly tent. Jesus is all of these things. Speaking to us from this, you know, you know, this tent in the desert are the truths of God and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, that he is the presence of God among us. You know, what do we do with this? It, it can feel so hard to read about you know, acacia wood and all these things, and think, okay, how on earth do I apply this to my life? What is this text asking of us today? I think it's asking us to reconsider what our greatest needs are, what our greatest dilemmas are, what the most important places in our lives are. You know, here in the second millennium BC, in this remote place in a desert, 
God chooses Bezalel to build a box for him. Here's this vulnerable people, you know, these, these they're newly delivered slaves. God doesn't, they're dwelling in this hot, arid desert. God doesn't build for them city walls. He doesn't send horses and chariots. He doesn't instruct them to fashion shields and swords. He says, I want you to build me a tent. And in that tent, I want you to build me a box. And I'm going to dwell there in your midst because that is what you need. In the first century, God's people find themselves in a similarly vulnerable place. Under the thumb of the Roman Empire, this persecuted people, desiring for this warrior king to come and deliver them. But God does not send a warrior. God sets his sight on a tiny town in the Mediterranean and chooses a teenager named Mary to give birth to the Savior of the world. And he knits together in her womb by flesh and spirit this common man except for the fact that he is God most high. And he sends this man to us not for a season but for eternity Behind the details of this passage, the cubits and the acacia wood and the calyx and all of these things is a statement about God and about the care with which he takes to dwell with us, to condescend to us, to show us himself in ways that we can comprehend, in ways that can comfort us, in ways that center our lives. There are often needs that seem far more pressing. Need for a spouse. Need for healing. Need for a certain job to come through or for my children to start behaving in the right way. For a certain candidate to win. For this certain person to come and apologize to me. Whatever it is. And, and these things are important, no doubt. These are important. But the care and attention given in this building project in the second millennium BC shows us that actually what our greatest need is is to dwell with God and for God to dwell with us for, for his light to shine in our midst. I want to leave you with a quote from D.A. Carson which I think sums up how a text like this can be really relevant for us. He said, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. The ark, the mercy seat, the table, the altar, the oil, all of these things are speaking from a tent in the desert thousands of years ago to say that God sees your need. He has put the most important thing at the center of your life to give light to all that you do, to give meaning to all that you do, to set you in a secure place what all of our needs need most 
is for God to be at the center of them, dwelling with us. And in Christ, that is true. So how do, re- how do we respond to this text? We embrace Jesus Christ, the true dwelling place of God, and we abide in him. That is the gift to us from this text. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, Lord. Help us to reorient our lives around your presence, to walk in your presence, to delight in your presence, to bring your presence into all things that we do. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way to dwell with us. We love you, God, because you first loved us. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.